it's been a labor of love to have this project um, actually get off the ground. And I think I feel very passionate about it and I'm really hopeful that we're gonna be able to show that um, with these modified techniques, we can, we can make this procedure safe. And I think for our patients, that's gonna be huge. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and my guest is Dr. Kristen Bixel. Kristen is an oncologist who specializes in gynecologic cancer and minimally invasive surgeries. These minimally invasive surgeries, also sometimes called robotic surgery, are being performed on a growing number of different types of cancers and are a big step forward and have several benefits for patients, which Kristen will explain. However, the minimally invasive surgery that was developed for cervical cancer had some issues. And so Kristen and her team here at the James, determined to do something about that, developed a new minimally invasive procedure for cervical cancer that could eliminate some of the past issues and is currently in a new clinical trial here at the James led by Kristen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm very interested to learn about this new procedure you you developed. But first, a little bit of your background. I understand it's not just you, but you and your husband came here to Ohio State and the, and the James. So fill us in on how you guys met perhaps in medical school and came together as a as a highly recruited team. Yeah, so we, um, as you said, met, met in medical school and ultimately couples matched in residency. We were in Boston. When I was looking for fellowship, um, we were mobile. He had completed his fellowship. Um, and so we really looked all over the country. And when I came to interview here at Ohio State, I felt like it was just the right fit. I had great um, mentors and volume and um, the patient uh, catchment area is, is very broad. So I felt like I would get excellent training here. And thankfully there was an, an excellent opportunity for uh, David as well. He came as an anesthesiologist and he's trained in critical care. So what is his current job? So he um, is currently the residency program director for anesthesia. Um, he also serves as the Associate um, Chief Medical Officer of the James. Uh, I believe that's the correct title. Oh, does that, um, make, does that make him your boss? Uh, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe in sort of a strange way. Um, and then he has some other administrative roles, but. So you mentioned that one of the reasons you came here, and I think I, I know you're being a little modest, you didn't just come here, you were recruited because you were an up and coming star, but you talked about <laughs> Um, the volume, meaning you, the, the James gets people from Ohio and beyond because it has such a good reputation. So you get a lot of work and get to perfect your craft and mentors. So yeah. who, who was was and is a mentor or two of yours here at the James? Yeah, so I feel like everybody in the division as I trained was really a mentor. Um, I will just mention a few specifically. So Dr. Cohn was a, a mentor of mine. That's Dave Cohn. Mm -hmm. um, and he is just a very, um, he's very smart. He's also very funny, um, has a very level head, and I think is a, is a forward thinker. And so he really pushed me, um, not only in the moment, for instance, in surgery, you know, what is the next step, but sort of in your career, what are you looking for? What are your goals? And sort of um, as I identified those things really helped to, to get me there. Um, another person was Dr. Fowler. So Jeff Fowler was here um, and retired recently. Um, I really admired uh, his performance in the operating room. I really kind of 
took to his style and mirrored a lot of his um, surgical practice. And he really helped me to gain some skills for sort of advanced like radical surgery, um, radical reconstructive surgery. Um, and really he was a big influence in, in me developing this clinical trial. Um, I went to him with this interest and he really mentored me through the process of writing the protocol and, and developing it with our, our um, teammates at Sloan Kettering. Yeah, it seemed like you said Dave Cohn taught you to think forward, mm -hmm. and Jeff Fowler was an expert in surgery. You combine those th two <laughs> things, you come up with a new clinical trial. Yeah. So, but before again, before we get to that, minimally invasive cancer surgery yeah. has been a big trend for a decade or more. Mm -hmm. So, just briefly, and maybe with a, a, an example or two in gynecologic cancers, mm -hmm. what is it and what are the benefits of it? Yeah, so minimally invasive surgery is really using small incisions with um, a special technology in order to perform the same operations we would typically through large incisions. So it's using a camera and small instruments um, uh, to perform the surgery, and we do that with by insufflating or um, putting gas into the abdomen so that we're able to see. Um, and see, and you have space to, to, to move work. your To work, exactly. Okay. Um, and so minimally invasive uh, surgery really changed um, the face of surgery. In other words, it is associated with a much faster recovery, um, lower perioperative risk, so lower blood loss, less infection risk, less blood clot risk. Um, and, you know, it first was sort of implemented for benign procedures, but quickly um, was implemented in the oncology world as well. And um, I think the best example was with endometrial cancer. So there was a large randomized controlled trial back in the, um, I think it was published initially in 2012, um, the LAP2 study, which looked at um, Minim, or minimally invasive at that time, laparoscopic surgery versus open surgery for endometrial cancer. Now, where is endometrial cancer? In the lining of the uterus. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this study showed that there was no significant differences in oncologic outcomes and that the potential benefits, like I mentioned, shorter length of stay, lower risk of complications, um, uh, were present for the patients who had minimally invasive surgery. So this really led to, I think, exploration of the use of minimally invasive techniques in other cancer types as well, including cervical cancer and ovarian cancer. So endometrial cancer was one of the first ones. For gynecologic cancers or overall? Oh, um, I would say for gynecologic cancer. Okay, I'm not sure that's about not, the... That, that's not your area of Yeah, expertise. I don't know exactly where that fell in <laughs> okay, line with, so, other, uh, with other disease sites, but, um, but certainly for gynecologic, for gynecologic cancers, cancers. Endometrial was sort of the yeah. first one, and this, it, the patient's outcomes in terms of recurrence and how long they lived was the same. Right, we didn't see any but differences. They had le it's a less invasive surgery, so that's great. Yeah. Okay, then so... Um, one was developed for cervical cancer, but what happened? <laughs> yeah, so the LAC trial was uh, the only to date um, completed randomized control trial looking at minimally invasive surgery versus laparotomy for a radical laparotomy hysterectomy. Means you op it's a big the open opening. incision, yes. Like, it, like six inches of like how it depends a little on, bit on, on the, the patient right. and the procedure that's being done and sometimes that's an up and down incision on the abdomen sometimes it's a side to side incision in the in the low abdomen um, it really just depends on the patient and the disease that's being performed but effectively one large incision versus multiple mm -hmm. small incisions okay. Um, and so in this trial it was primarily pr the, again the radical hysterectomy and that's 
if you're not familiar, removal of the uterus, the cervix, the tissue beside the cervix and the upper vagina. Um, the radical hysterectomy is performed for early stage cervical cancer. Um, and in this trial, the minimally invasive arm was primarily laparoscopic. Only about 15% of those patients had robotic surgery. Um, the, that study demonstrated a higher risk of recurrence and a higher risk of death in patients who had had the minimally invasive surgery. And so this... Um, which was a surprise, Which perhaps. was a big surprise yeah. for us, yes. And um, at that point in time, you know, the study recruited over many, many years, but by the time it was completed and published, more than half of the radical hysterectomies performed in the United States were being performed through minimally invasive techniques. And so this was a huge shift in clinical practice. And so Meaning really everyone did. everyone had to say, oh, we got to take a step exactly. back. Exactly. Um, and so very, very quickly, um, the sort of standard became open surgery. Um, and the, you know, the sort of recommended approach was open by all of the major national societies. Yes, because the, the, the downside of recurrence outweighed the benefits of the, the less invasive surgery. Right. Because, yes, of course. Right. So why, why do you think the recurrence rate for minimally invasive cervical cancer hysterectomy surgeries was, was higher? What yeah. was the problem? So there are several hypotheses as to why that may be. Um, we cannot prove with any certainty just yet, um, but I would say there are a few things that have come to mind. I think the biggest um, issue that I see is that the technique that we use for minimally invasive surgery um, is different than open, so the actual surgical procedure is different. And without getting into too many specifics, in an open radical hysterectomy, the cervical tumor is never really exposed to the abdominal cavity or the peritoneal cavity. With minimally invasive surgery, classically, the vagina is divided and the cervix is uncovered. And therefore, in theory, it is exposed to the peritoneal cavity. Plus, you have this sort of circulating air that's expanding the abdomen so you can operate. Um, and so perhaps if you expose that tumor, you have that increased pressure in circulating air, Perhaps that's the reason why we see this increased risk of recurrence. It could somehow spread during the procedure? Right, that the procedure itself itself was increasing the risk yeah. of, of spread. Wow. Which is the exact opposite of what you want to do. Right, and so, you know, it's, again, it's hard to prove that, right. but there are certainly um, look back or retrospective studies that have examined kind of comparing outcomes for people who had what I term tumor containment, um, where the vagina was sort of closed before it was divided. Um, and those patients seem to have similar outcomes to, to patients who had open surgeries. Um, and so it, it's sort of evidence suggests that, that this would make sense um, as to the reason why. There's also um, an an issue with potentially uterine manipulators. So this is a device that goes through the cervix into the uterus that can help kind of move the uterus around. And when you're doing minimally invasive surgery, you don't have your hands in there to be able to move things. And so this is a device that really can make surgery easier um, and more effective because it can move the uterus around. But perhaps introducing that manipulator um, is actually disrupting the tumor and may lead to more tumor right. shed there. And so um, that's another thing that has been studied in retrospective studies and suggests that is associated with increased risk of recurrence. So my hypothesis is that if you take away the uterine manipulator and you close the vagina before making that incision, or I should say close the vagina over the tumor before cutting the vagina below that, um, that, that your oncologic outcomes should be similar, right? Um, and so this is what led to the basis of our clinical trial. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to hear more about the basis for your new, your new clinical trial and how you decided that uh, I'm going to figure out a way to make this <laughs> yeah. happen. Yeah. In today's world, misinformation abounds, but at the Ohio State Health and Discovery website, we're addressing today's most relevant health, wellness, science, and research topics, all from the Ohio State experts you can trust. We're tapping into physicians, scientists, and thought leaders across our medical center and health sciences colleges to give you the deeper story behind the headlines and the truth about the topics affecting the health of individuals, society, and the world. Visit health.osu.edu today. We're back with Kristen Bixel and we're going to talk about a new clinical trial. And Kristen, so Previously, when this first clinical trial for a minimally invasive procedure for cervical cancer didn't work, that the recurrence rate was higher mm -hmm. than d using traditional surgery, sort of what went through your mind? What were you thinking of why this was happening? Yeah, so I remember the exact seat I was sitting in when I um, was watching the presentation of these results. And You were at a conference? I was at a conference, yes. And um, immediately my mind went to sort of the procedure itself. Um, you know, minimally invasive surgery, it's just a tool. We're just using a technique, but we're performing the same surgery, meaning the same radicality. We're assessing the same lymph nodes. We're, you know, doing the same surgery. So I immediately thought, this has to be something we're doing differently. And I thought about my training and how I learned to do an open radical hysterectomy and how I learned to do a minimally invasive radical hysterectomy. And it was very clear to me that there are sort of these two main differences, right? One I, I just alluded to was the uterine manipulator. Right. Um, and the other was yeah. sort of how we made this what we call colpotomy or the division of the upper vagina um, and this potential exposure of the tumor to the peritoneal cavity. So immediately... I thought, you know, sort of how can we how can we modify this procedure in order to make it better? Like we should be able to do this surgery. This this is just a tool. We just have to use it appropriately. Um, but and, I'm, I'm thinking and yeah. picturing because you're such an expert in this, as you're at that conference sitting mm -hmm. in that seat that you remember mm -hmm. hearing this in your brain, you can see all this anatomy mm -hmm. and what's going on and what's going wrong and what you could correct. I'm just picturing that that it's like almost like an artist vision of something is, is that going through your brain you're seeing the anatomy and what is different and what could be done yeah what, what's funny is i always tell my patients when i'm explaining the anatomy in my head i literally see it as though yeah. i'm looking through a laparoscope or a robotic scope because I, that's how i do my surgeries or that's how we do the majority of our hysterectomies um, and so immediately I, I just started thinking about, like, I'm looking at this case, what, what is different and how can we figure out how to make these two surgeries more the same? Um, and so I think you're right. It was it's sort of just like picturing how, how we do this and how we can make it different. So picturing it in your brain <laughs> and bringing it to a clinical trial, yeah. I'm assuming is, is, <laughs> uh, is, is, is kind of a complicated process. So what, how did you get it? from this vision in your brain into a clinical trial with patients? Yeah, so um, it took many years and um, a few tears and a lot of hard work and a lot of mentorship and support. 
Um, so the initial process was presenting it to one of our national groups I presented at the NRG. Um, it was not supported by uh, by that particular committee because of the potential difficulty with funding and the type of trial that it was. And um, but we got a lot of good feedback and sort of when you I- say present, ideas. you present the basic idea. Yes, it's called you present a concept, concept in, a, yeah. in a cervical cancer committee for the NRG. And so I, that was not accepted or not moved forward through that mechanism, but we did get a lot of good feedback and um, ultimately a lot of support by different people who were also interested in the same question. Um, I ended up working with uh, Mario Lateo at Sloan Kettering, uh, Jeff Fowler here, um, to develop a protocol. And it really did evolve over time with a lot of feedback from other people. Um, and like I said, we felt it really critical to do the trial different uh, or differently than, than the first trial. If you repeat it exactly the same, you're going to get the same results in yeah. theory because of the nature of the, the trial. So when we started thinking about ways by which we could change the procedure, it's very easy to say you don't use a uterine manipulator, but the, the tumor containment part of this surgery was a little bit more unique or novel, or we needed to sort of do some research. And so there actually had been several publications about different techniques for, for this tumor containment, not necessarily because of the results of this trial, they had been completed even before, but sort of recognizing that oncologically, we typically try to contain these tumors and in cervical cancer, we hadn't. So I didn't create the technique to close the vagina before making the colpotomy or incising the vagina. Um, but we sort of drew from other examples in the literature and sort of put it together to say, well, you can use these, you know, one of these three different techniques and you can't use a manipulator and, and here's how we move forward. Ultimately, we um, met and sort of continued to revise the protocol with the GOG and then um, went to Intuitive, which is the company that makes the robotic platform. Um, and they, they agreed that this was a really important study and actually um, gave an unrestricted research grant to GOG so that we could, what, what is the Gynecologic Oncology Group okay. Foundation. Um, so uh, they, they gave an unrestricted research grant to the Gynecologic Oncology Group so that we could study this in, an, uh, in a prospective fashion, um, in a randomized fashion. Um, and so that's how that's how it's happened. <laughs> it's interesting the way you explain that that you said we didn't in, invent this particular procedure, but it sounds mm -hmm. like with any science or, or great science mm -hmm. or scientists, you take six, seven, eight, ten, twenty ideas yeah. and sort of bring them together. The oh, and these four or five will work in what I want to do. So no one yeah. starts from scratch. You're always building upon others and right. taking the best things out there and combining them to make something new. Yes, we absolutely were building upon what what others had done in order to to make this protocol. Now, give me a sense of, with cervical cancer and radical hysterectomies, mm -hmm. how many uh, a year cases are diagnosed and surgeries performed? Yeah, um, so it varies from year to year. There are about 12,000 new cases of cervical cancer in the United States per year. Um, less than half of those are surgery eligible. Um, and so, you know, if we do the math, it's roughly what, 6,000. Yeah. Um, and so I don't know the exact number for how many are performed per year, but that's an average. Okay. Yeah. And w your clinical trial with this mm -hmm. new procedure 
has it, it it's already started? It has, yeah. So we opened last um, February, and we are still so February of twenty twenty two. Yep, and so it's an it's sort of a rolling <laughs> rolling opening, right? Whereas as different sites around the country and actually internationally are opening, um, and so we now have about sixty two patients enrolled, and um, just a little under that have had surgery so far. Um, so it is the the pace is rapidly picking up but so i know it's too soon to tell the Mm long-term recurrence rate because that that's a long-term right issue but in general how do you think it's going so i think it's just too soon to say we don't have enough patience on the study and we haven't done any interim analyses Uh, we're actually just getting ready to do our first safety meeting here shortly um so it's just too soon to say. I think what we are ensure, like we have a very rigorous process of reviewing um, the operative reports that we're having a photograph of the specimen to ensure that the tumor containment methods are being performed. Um, and then we're meeting with our, we have a, an independent like investigator group to, to ensure that they're sort of evaluating the safety of the procedure because obviously we don't want to continue the study if we're if if patients are being harmed by one of the arms so i it's too soon to say but we're going to be actively looking at a on a frequent basis to ensure that we're not um, seeing any signals of of harm and everything you said makes me think how important it is to have all these safety uh, procedures in place and all these yeah. uh, observations and, and things you have to do before it becomes standard of care. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've we've learned a lot from what we saw. You know, everybody made yeah. an assumption that um, uh, that the outcomes would be similar, but it's clearly very important to study it. Um, I think you know, designing the clinical trial, we had to be very careful about. Um, who's included, which surgeons are operating, how frequently we're analyzing the data to ensure that we're not causing harm. Um, and so that, those are, that was all part of the trial design. So I'm going to end by going back to what you said at the beginning about why you came here to Ohio State was the opportunity to work in a large comprehensive cancer center where mm-hmm. you could see a lot of patients and where you had mentors who would push you, mm-hmm. which seems to have come true. So yeah. what's it like for you to have this opportunity mm-hmm. to help create a new type of surgery that could have great benefits down the line for thousands of women around the world. <laughs> I mean, it's some degree, it feels a little surreal. You know, I, I, it's been a labor of love to have this project, um, actually get off the ground. And I think I feel very passionate about it and I'm really hopeful that we're going to be able to show that um, with these modified techniques, we can we can make this procedure safe, and I think for our patients, that's going to be huge. You know, the recovery time, the hospitalization time, the uh, quality of life uh, immediately after surgery. You know, when you talk to patients, like. 100% of them want to have small incision surgery. Yeah. Um, now, no one wants to have small incision surgery if it means they're you know, going to be more likely to die of their cancer. But if we can make those oncologic outcomes the same, I think people would really value having a minimally invasive option. Well, thanks for sharing yeah. all this great research yeah. and new techniques and for refusing to accept <laughs> what was there and creating something new. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.